My guest today is Brian Ahern, and you may recognize the name because he was on the show a little over a month ago talking to us all about the psychology and science of influence and persuasion. Brian has been teaching this for over two decades. He was named one of the top 100 influencers by the science of digital marketing. In addition, his blog was named one of the top 30 psychology blogs by the Online Psychology Degree Guide. He's been cited in multiple books and has several LinkedIn learning courses that you can check out. Listen to my conversation with Brian today, and I have no doubt you're going to come out the other end a better manager. Welcome to The Corporate Middle, your survival guide for corporate insanity. My guest today is Brian Ahern, and he is actually a two-time guest. He was with me uh, about a month ago, and we talked about the science of persuasion. And he's back today with a new book. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me back on, Donald. I uh, really enjoyed the first time, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. So as I alluded to already, you've got a new book. What the heck is the book about, and why did you write it? Well, the book is called Influence People with the subtitle, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. And the, the reason that I wrote the book is because in teaching people now for 15 years or so, the science of influence, what I noticed was no matter how well we would do with the science, people still really struggle to put it into practical application. And even if people don't go through training, those who might read somebody, Robert Cialdini's book or others, they're fascinated by the science but they don't always see how they can then start utilizing it right away. And so my book is really about the practical application. I don't go deep into the science. I reference the principles. I may reference a study or something like that to give confidence to readers, but it really is about the practical application of that work. Yeah, I agree. And I do think that that makes your book different than a lot of the books that are out there on the topic. I've read a lot of them, uh, as you have as well. And the science is absolutely fascinating. But the truth is, we need to know how to actually apply it. And the great thing about your book is it gives examples. It gives case studies on how to do just that. And so that's exactly what I want to do. I want to dive into some actual use cases where middle managers or managers at any level can actually learn to wield persuasion and influence. And one of the first things I enjoyed about your book is you talked a lot about digital communication. Nowadays, we're doing everything over email and IM and Slack and whatever it is, and you lose a lot of richness in that medium and the communication. So what are some things that we can do to improve our digital communication, actually be more persuasive? I get that question a lot because people are always wanting to get a response to an email and they wonder what they can do more effectively. So let me share a story uh, that I actually have in the book. It was a mistake that I made that I quickly learned from. I had done some training regarding Dale Carnegie. And I had about 300 or so people that went through the training. And sometime afterward, I sent an email to everybody and they were all listed on the email and there was no privacy concerns because they all worked for the same company. And I sent this and I asked, or I said, uh, if you have any good stories based on the Dale Carnegie training, let me know and maybe we can include it in an upcoming edition of our online magazine. I had no responses, 300 people, no responses. And I stepped back and said, how can I redo this? Because first, 
I wasn't thinking ahead. When 300 people saw that many others on the email, everybody assumed somebody else would respond and nobody responded. So the second time I sent a personal email. So you would have gotten one just going to you. And then I personalized it, which is a little bit of the application of reciprocity. And I would have just simply put in there Donald. And then I went into the body of the email. And instead of making a statement, I asked a question. And I would have said, Donald, have you had any opportunity to apply the Dale Carnegie training? Question mark. If so, let me know, and maybe we can include it in an upcoming edition of our online magazine. And so simply by putting in a question, most people feel compelled to answer questions. And I had 125 people reply within a week of sending that second email. Now, the majority of them said, no, I really haven't had any specific application but two dozen of them gave me stories. Huge difference from what I had done the first time. And using technology by doing a mail merge, it wasn't as if I had to send 100 or uh, 300 emails. I sent one email that just mail merged and shot out basically the same message to each person, but it individualized. And that was a big aha moment for me about the power of personalizing and then asking a question. A third thing that I always tell people too is, If you can include a picture of yourself on that email, if you can embed that into your auto signature, that personalizes you. And there's lots of studies that show we respond differently in a positive way to people when we see their pictures. It humanizes us and it makes us realize, oh yeah, that's a real person who emailed me. I should probably take a moment to email them back. So those three tips, uh, personalize it, ask a question, include your, your photo, you will get better response rates. There's a lot of wisdom in that because in in corporate America, I think mass emails are a huge problem and you see it all the time where you need a response, you need something done, project status, whatever it is. And what happens is that if they don't know directly who to ask sometimes, they will just send out this blanket email to 50 to 20 to 30 people and say, hey, what's an update here? And that's exactly what happens is in your, in, in your book, you call it the diffusion of responsibility, which yep. I really I really love that term is that, you know what, somebody else is going to take care of this. I, I don't right. need to do it because look at all the people on the email. I bet someone else will take care of this. And, and we see that because, you know what, everybody's busy. Mm-hmm. We're always busy and no one wants to do somebody else's work. And so everybody just kind of waits to see who's going to respond by doing what you're talking about actually personalizing it and actually asking a question is going to incite more people to respond. And I think that's a huge, huge deal because I know I personally sat and waited on a response to an email for a day or two and then end up emailing again and saying, hey, why is no one answered? And it's just a huge mess. So there's so much to learn there on how to properly format an email. Yep. And I just got an email this morning where somebody was asking for volunteers and part of an organization that I'm in. And I looked at it and I started to scroll down and I saw the email string and I saw all of these other people that had been contacted. And my first thought was, somebody's going to get there. It, it, It removed the sense of urgency from me. And the second thing I started to think, well, if there are that many people that are on the email already and they don't have their 40 volunteers, what's wrong with this? Both of those are working against what they want to accomplish. That individual, if he would have sent a personal email to me and, and however many other people he had on there from, our, from this organization, 
I'm sure he would have got a much better response rate. Because if I felt like Bob sent it right to me and he's asking me, can I come to a particular meeting on a particular day? I'm either going to say, yes, Bob, I can, or no, Bob, I can't. But when I see all these other people, I don't even feel compelled to have to respond to it because I'm like, "Eh, somebody else will and someone probably will. But it's just a, a poor way of going about the communication. I live my life on a philosophy of never volunteering for anything. So I don't know if any persuasion would have helped in that situation. <laughs> yeah, but you might have at least responded and saying, hey, I'm unavailable or I can't make it. Yeah, you got to try to hide. You know, they, if they ask for volunteers, always avert your eyes every yeah. single time. Well, see, you are a victim of corporate America. That's why you do that. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I can't help but tell one story that's a bit of a tangent is that, you know, we had some new training coming out on Six Sigma. They put an email, so this is a new company objective. It's going to be really neat. We're going to all learn about Lean Six Sigma and all this stuff. And so I sent an email out to my boss and I said, hey, you know, that looks interesting. I, I would be interested in taking some of that training. And I didn't even get a response. And about two weeks later, I got an email from a vice president I had never met. And it said, congratulations on your new job. I'm looking forward to working with you. (laughs) I said, what new job? Who are you? What are you talking about? Apparently, my boss had put me in a new organization to learn how to be a Six Sigma black belt. And I called her up and I said, apparently, I don't work for you. She said, oh, good. Congratulations. (laughs) Never volunteer. It it actually did work out really well, but you got to be careful. Yes. Yes, you do. And then the other thing is when you when you step into something like that, you know, too, that you become that person they continually go back to. I mean, just like in sales, somebody's going to go back. You're in a sense of repeat customer. But it does make people leery of, of volunteering because they're like, eh, boy, if I if I give some time here or I donate there, I know I'm going to be contacted um, a lot more in the future. And that can hold people back as well. So if you actually need volunteers and you're the one asking, what we need to make sure we're doing is personalizing that communication. Give them a photo. Let them know you're actually a real person that they need to talk to and and really focus on personalizing and asking a question as opposed to saying, hey, I need someone to do this. Exactly. You don't want to say, if you can make it tonight at the meeting at six to seven, that would be fantastic. You want to ask the question, can you? You want that person to come back and say yes or no. And if they say yes, they will be far more committed to getting there. But if they just see the email that says there's a meeting, they might think, oh, I think I'm going to go to that. They can forget about it. Uh, something of higher priority can come up. Any number of things can can distract them from an internal good attention. But once they publicly get back to you and say, yes, Donald, I, I'm, I can make it, they're going to work much harder to make sure they live up to that commitment. I love how you talk about that as humans, we just have this itching desire to answer a question. So mm-hmm. instead of saying, come to the meeting tonight, if you actually do the framing like you talked about and said, will you come to the meeting tonight? People can't help it. They feel like they have to answer. Exactly. I mean, even when people don't want to answer, I'm sure you've experienced this, Donald. You're maybe in a large shopping mall and you're walking down and there's kiosks and there are people who are approaching you all the time to try to get your attention and they'll walk along beside you for a moment. And when they put out an offer, most people will respond. They may say, no, thank you but they still respond. And that's the key there because they were asked something, hey, can I have a moment of your time? No, thank you. And then they keep walking. But that should be a trigger for us that even when we don't want something, we still feel this compulsion to have to respond when somebody 
actually addresses us with a question. That's a great point. And, and here's a tip right there. That, that is a tip right there for all the managers. And there's so many different leadership styles, and some of them are very direct. When you're talking to your team, you should not be issuing commands. If you actually say, can you do this? Will you do this? Will this be done by Thursday? That type of framing and how you speak to your team is going to have a much better response rate than actually just commanding someone to do that. Right. And let's get into this a little bit deeper then. So here's this is real world practical application. If you want to, over the course of time, really set yourself apart as a leader, think about what leaders typically do. They may turn to somebody, Donald, I need the sales numbers by Friday, right? And they think, okay, I, I addressed you. You're my subordinate. I've told you exactly what I need. And it's even more difficult if they're not somebody who's a direct report. But when I have done that, I have not engaged the principle that we call consistency. If you don't get that to me, you don't necessarily feel bad because deep down you're thinking, I I didn't tell you I could. So you have a little wiggle room there. But if I ask you, Donald, can you get me the report by Friday? And you say yes. Now you've got that internal psychological pressure. You don't want to let yourself down. You also don't want to look bad in front of me. So you've got two forces pushing on you. But here's where you can become very strategic and really set yourself apart as a leader. If I need that by Friday, I don't ask for it by Friday. Because if you say, no, I've got no fallback. There's no reason I can't say, Donald, would you be able to get me the sales numbers by Tuesday? And if you say, yes, great, I've got a little more lead time to work on them. If you say, no, I engage reciprocity by conceding a little bit. And I might say, Donald, I get it. Everybody's really busy. Is there any chance you could get it to me by Wednesday afternoon? And the likelihood of you saying yes to that is pretty significant. But even if you have to say no, I can still fall back to Thursday. Understanding that you want to ask for something before that due date to allow yourself fallback positions in case that person says that they're very busy and they say no. But the psychology is quite often they'll come back and say yes after they've said no once or twice. The third thing I'll say is then you tag it with a reason. Studies show when you use the word because that significantly more people will actually do what you want. So the smart manager says, Donald, can you get me the sales numbers by Tuesday because I need them to finish the board report? So now I've asked, I've got fallback position, I've tagged it with because and given you a reason, and I could also make a case for citing the fact that it's for the board report adds authority to the mix. If I consistently communicate with people that way, I am going to get what I need timely more often than the person who's never learned this and they by default just keep telling people what they need on the due date. Well, I hope everyone has a pen and paper right now. If you're driving while you're listening to this, pull over and make a note because that is a huge, huge knowledge bomb that you just dropped on everybody What an incredible tip on how to communicate with your team. And I want to summarize because I think it's important enough that we need to say it one more time. When you actually need something by Friday, you should be asking for it. Hey, I need this on Tuesday. And only that, you're going to make sure that you ask for it. You're going to qualify why you need it and why it's important. And that's going to make a huge difference in actually getting those things on time. That's a huge difference in the way a lot of communication is being done because I think a lot of times for whatever reason, our idea of what a boss is, is kind of filled by the movies, 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in literature. Yeah. And most of the time it's that demanding boss. And what you're saying is the science actually says that's the wrong way to lead your team. Right. I mean, what we're doing in corporations isn't life and death. You know, if, if I were in the military, I might have to just issue orders. There's no time for discussing and, and things like that. But most of us are not dealing in situations like that. And so we don't want to default to the way it's always been done because that's what we've learned. Because that is, science is saying, that is not the most effective way. And one other thing that I want to say um, to really drive home the point, when you give the reason, make sure you use the word because. Hmm. The social scientists theorize that when we are asked to do something and we are given a reason tagged with the word because, that we tend to follow through more because we're conditioned from childhood. So Donald, when, mm. when you were younger, if mom or dad ever told you to do something, they probably didn't ask, they probably told you, right? If they <laughs> told you, cut the grass, take out the garbage, do your homework, if they told you to do something, if you ever dared say why, what did they say? Because I said so. <laughs> said so, bingo. And, and you just started to learn. You, you weren't even thinking, well, because I said so is not really a valid reason. Why do I need to cut the grass? Why do I need to take out the, you just knew you better get your butt in gear and do it. And so we are conditioned that we almost don't even pay attention to what comes after because. Now I'm not saying give a bogus reason, give a legitimate reason, but take that one extra breath, say because, share why it is that you need that, and you'll have more people doing what you need them to do. Now, you probably shouldn't say, because I said so, though. I'm, I'm assuming that might undermine some of that. Exactly. You, that's why I say <laughs> we want to give a legitimate reason. Because I need the sales numbers, because I have to get the board report uh, completed or something like that. But you give them that, that reason. Uh, again, it's faulty thinking if someone say, thinks to themselves, it doesn't matter why I need it. Just get it for me. No. Take that extra moment to give that reason, because your whole goal as a leader is to move the people to action who report to you or that you interact with. So you have to then say, what's the best way to do that? And it's not by issuing the commands. It's not by denying reasons. That's not what the science tells us. That makes a lot of sense if you actually stop and think about it. Those are some mm-hmm. really great tips. Like I said, I hope people <laughs> are writing this down because this is good stuff and it really can transform how you lead your team. And I think a lot of good leaders, natural leaders, if you will, kind of stumble into this naturally, but it's something that actually can be learned, right? It's something that you can implement today, which I think is really, really good. Yes. It's because it's science. We, we can all learn that. And then we just have to make the choice to start putting into practice what we've learned. I like that. I'm going to start saying, because it's science. I like that. That's that's going to be my because from now on. So that, that makes a lot of Good. sense. Well, there's one other topic. I, Is that going to work with your <laughs> wife? Are you going to say, I need, I need dinner because it's science? You know, that's funny. I, I actually used that the other day. Uh, there was The kids were playing outside, and there was some thunder outside. And I said, the kids can't be outside because there's going to be lightning. And she said, no, 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 no. You can have thunder without lightning. I said, no, you can't. It's science. So I actually did already use that once. <laughs> I don't know how effective it was in persuasion, but it, but it did work. So <laughs> now there is a, there's one other topic uh, I wanted to get your opinion on, and this is one that's kind of controversial. It goes back and forth depending on what book you read or who you hear it from. And the question is, can you be friends with people that actually work for you? 
There's a lot of topics back and forth. Where do you stand on that? Can you actually be friends or friendly with people on your team? There's two aspects to that. I think you can be friendly and you can take it further and you can say we're friends. Not everybody may be able to draw the line between uh, being a coworker or a boss and a friend. I was very fortunate where I worked for somebody where we had a great friendship and he was an outstanding boss. And he also knew where that line was. And there were times when he'd say, as a friend, here's what I'm going to talk to you about. And other times he'd say, I'm putting on my boss hat now. And, and as your boss, here's what I have to say about this. So he was very clear about that. But I think we can all strive to be friendly with the people that we work with. And the reason that's important, I think any one of your listeners would know, it's easier for people to say yes to them when those people like them. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we work a little harder to make sure that people like us, but more importantly, that we come to like those other people? Because if you like me, Donald, you will probably be more likely to do something if I ask you. But if you know deep down I really like you, you will be far more open to what I might ask. Because we believe deep down that friends do right by friends. And the good news is the more I come to like you, the more I do want the best for you, the more I want to do right by you. And I think that removes manipulation from from the process. Uh, I'm looking out for your best interest. You know that I'm looking out for your best interest. That's the game changer when it comes to this principle of liking. So it's, it's good to take the first step and have people like you, but you should work much harder at coming to like the people that you work with. Now, it doesn't mean you got to go out and have beers with them after work. It doesn't mean you have to be their Facebook friend, but it is really nice when you can go into your company and say, you know what? I really like the people that I work with. And that is more dependent on you than it is those people. That very last statement is rather profound if we look at it. It's more dependent on you than it is on other people. I think so much we try to attribute to people being unlikable, and the reality is maybe we haven't actually made much of an effort to see if there's anything at all redeemable about that person, and it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a, here's a real case. When I was with an insurance company here in Columbus, Ohio, this was many years ago, I started to get involved in claims training. And that was just because at the, at the core of settling a claim, you have to influence people to do things. And the person who was the head of the claims at the time liked the material I was teaching. And so he invited me to start working with the claims team. The very first meeting that I was in and the person who was the head of the training for claims, I got the distinct impression, and it might have only been my impression, but as I sat across from this person at a table, I felt like he was looking at me thinking, why the hell are you here? <laughs> This is my gig. You know, I mean, kind of a territorial and you you know, you've worked in large corporations, people can be very territorial. Right. So I wasn't getting a good vibe. Well, later that year, I had reached out to the head of claims and said, "I'm done with my spring training with agents. If you need my assistance, I'm I'm happy to help." I thought he was going to invite me to meetings in the headquarters. Instead, he said, "Would you go on the road with this individual?" And I was going to have to spend six out of like the next eight weeks on the road going to all of our claims offices with this guy who I didn't think really wanted me around. So that wasn't going to be an enjoyable end to my summer. So I had to put into practice all the things that I preach. I started reaching out and trying to connect with him on things that we have in common. We found out that he had done some ultra marathoning and I used to run marathons. He had done some powerlifting in college. I had been a powerlifter and a bodybuilder. And we started to connect on these things. And all of a sudden, 
the relationship started turning around. And by the end, we were having a great time. And even though he left the company many years ago, he has been one of my biggest advocates and supporters when I decided to leave my corporate role and move in to influence people full time. And it's because I took it upon myself to say, I want to find out a way I can like this guy because I want to enjoy these next six weeks on the road. It works. It is very, very rare that you put yourself out and try to get to know people that it goes nowhere. And and there will always be some people where that happens, but the vast majority will respond in ways that are extremely positive. And again, it's it was very nice to walk into work and say, you know what? I really do like the people that I work with. Well, it's good to know there actually is hope. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, just uh, take the persuasion angle out. It's just going to make your days at work a little bit better if you're trying to make that effort to actually get to know people. And And I certainly fall in the camp that, yes, you can. You can be friends and you can be friendly with people mm-hmm. that are actually on your team. That's kind of how I've always done things and just kind of naturally. But, you know, what the science tells us, because it's science, Uh, is that you're going to be more persuasive. People are actually going to want to work harder for you. They're going to want to say yes more often if they like you. And in order for them to like you, as we've talked about before, and we even touched on in the first podcast a little bit, is that you have to like them first. And so if you focus on that, it's going to make a huge difference. So hopefully, hopefully that argument is officially settled. There should be no more articles written about it. Officially, you can be friendly and friends with people on your team, but you have to know, you know, what that line is before you do it. Yes. So we've touched on a ton of different topics and different applications that we can actually use today as a manager of a team, but we've barely scratched the surface of the case studies and the examples and things that you do in your book. And and I personally got a lot out of it, even already knowing a lot of the science and knowing some of the applications and being through some of the training there were still things within your book that I can take away and start to practice in my day-to-day life. If people want to learn more about you and your book, where should they go? First place they could go would be to my website, which is influencepeople.biz. And if you go out there, you're going to see I've been blogging weekly for the last 10 years. I've got lots of video that are out there, been guests on many podcasts. I always list those so people would be able to listen to lots of podcasts. And they're free to connect with me on LinkedIn. So if you reach out to me on LinkedIn and you don't tell me like, hey, I heard you on Donald's podcast, expect that I will send a message back to ask, how did you find me? I like to understand where traffic is coming. I like to also go back to people whose podcasts I've been on to say, hey, you know, I had three or four people reach out and connect with me. So those are the definitely the two ways for people to connect. And a third thing, other than my book, Donald, what I would like to say is anybody listening to this, if you send an email to book launch at influencepeople.biz. So if you you could put that in the show notes, but if you put it book launch at influencepeople.biz, you'll get a reply with a link to some free training, 15 minute training on a concept that I don't touch on in the book called pre-suasion. Excellent. Excellent. Definitely encourage people to check that out. I know just in our short time together, you've already given us a couple applications that we can use in our day-to-day life to be more persuasive and to lead our teams better. Brian, thanks so much for being a two-time guest here on the show. Enjoy talking with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Donald. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. 
Brian gave us some great knowledge and some great tips that we can actually put into practice right now to become better managers. And as Brian talked about, if you want to learn more about him or his book, you can check him out at influencepeople.biz. That's influencepeople.biz. I definitely think you should check it out. He's got some videos on there that can help you in your day-to-day interactions to be more persuasive and to have more influence. If you enjoyed my conversation with Brian, here's one thing I ask. Will you share it with someone else? There it is. I'm using a framing question just like Brian just talked about. Will you share it? There's definitely some knowledge that I think you know other people need as well. So share it with others so they can discover it too. If you have any ideas about topics I need to cover or even want to be featured on the podcast, you can find me at thecorporatemiddle.com. My contact information is on there. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, the reward for good work is just more work. See you next time.